My name is Andrea Bumstead and I am a member at Restore Temecula. If you are new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help in any way, please visit our website at www.RestoreTemecula.com and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app store. With all of that said, we hope you enjoy the message. So guys, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but I perfectly matched the carpet. Thanks, Harrison. Not planned. I promise, not planned. Yet, funny nonetheless. Okay. Um, I know Herrick already touched on Mother's Day, but I just want to take a moment and honor all of you ladies in the room. Now, uh, there's a reality to the, the just incredible benefit that biological motherhood is on the world. It's incredible. Uh, but to limit motherhood to just biology, I think is, uh, is lacking. It's foolish. It's missing. Uh, every single woman in the room, can I just have your attention for just a second? And even you, you young ladies, uh, every lady in the room, God created you with a unique purpose. And one of your purposes is to mother. And that is separate, can be separate from biologically. But to spiritually engage with the people around you in nurturing ways, in caring ways, in ways that are lovingly sacrificial. It's part of who God has made you to be. And so I just want to take a moment and honor every single lady in the room and how valuable you are and how much you're loved, okay? So, yes. You really are worth so much more than macaroons and gluten-free donuts and the things. But I want to honor uh, my wife. She really wanted to get you guys something this morning. And so, and I love that you guys were passing those around in the trays. That was really, really cool. Really, really cool. So yeah, thank you. We honor you. Happy Mother's Day to everybody in the room. Now, this morning, we're going to be jumping back into our series called The King and His Kingdom, where we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew and and kind of the whole premise for this series is we've been investigating Jesus the King and what his kingdom is like. And the reason why we're investigating what his kingdom is like is because I feel like there's this pretty significant misconception of what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, those are synonymous, what it's like. I think, uh, especially in the West, Christians and even people tend to think of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God as something that you go to after you die. And, and while it is that, it's, it's so much more than that. The Bible speaks of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as something to be experienced, a reality to be experienced here and now as well, partly in the present and fully in the future. When I say partly in the present, I mean like there's a reality, there's still sin and brokenness and things not God's way that we experience all the time. I don't know if you know this, cancer, not God's way. Death, not God's way. Division, not God's way, right? So partly in the present, 
but fully in the future when Jesus comes again to make all things new the way he intended for them to be in the beginning before sin entered the world. But that doesn't mean that we're cut off from the kingdom of God. Even though we're in the midst of a broken, fallen world, because of the grace and the goodness of God in and through Jesus, we're not cut off from experiencing elements of the kingdom here and now. And that's why we're going through Matthew's gospel, is kind of through the lenses of of examining the king and his kingdom, hence the name of the series. Uh, a theologian, a theologian D.A. Carson, talks about the kingdom of God as being, it's more, than a, it's more a reign than it is a realm. It's more a power than it is a place. It's not just that thing that you experience when you die. We, we have, we have the, the opportunity to experience it even here and now, partly in the present, fully in the future. Today's message, it's really going to hone in on this idea of partly in the present. So it's going to hone in on this side of heaven, Okay. Now we are, gosh, we are in our ninth week working through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. It's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached by the greatest preacher, the greatest teacher, Jesus. And it's a, it's a, it's a significant chunk, about three chapters of Matthew's gospel. And we're, we're nine weeks into just the Sermon on the Mount portion of Matthew's gospel. Now, One of the reasons why not just me, but so many people throughout history have considered Jesus to be the greatest preacher, the greatest teacher, is because of the ways that he uses metaphors and illustrations. The way that he uses narrative, the way that he paints word pictures so that we can understand deep and profound concepts. Okay? The way he uses metaphors, the way he uses illustrations. Now, typically, if you've ever like, either tried to explain something to someone and you've used an illustration or a metaphor, or you've been in a classroom setting where someone's trying to teach you something and use an illustration or a metaphor, usually analogies, they tend to kind of fall short eventually. Here's the thing. Not with Jesus. He's brilliant. There's nobody like him. He's absolutely brilliant in the ways with which he approaches communicating information. He doesn't just arbitrarily grab oh, a metaphor and well, this, it's kind of like this. It's so deep and so meaningful. It's so deep and so meaningful that generations upon generations upon generations have been pondering Jesus' teachings. And it's almost like trying to dive the depths to the bottom. You can't touch the bottom. It's so deep. The analogy seemingly goes on forever. This morning is one of those, we're going to cover in today's passage, it's it's one of those unique metaphors that Jesus uses that the bottom is seemingly never ending. It's so deep, it's so meaningful. Trying to do it in one sermon's fairly impossible, but I'm going to try. Our passage today is the whole, it's the famous passage, uh, salt and light. You're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. That's what we're going to talk about. Jesus, he instructs his followers, his disciples. That's what a disciple is. It's someone who's, it means learner. It's someone who's learning to enjoy Jesus, obey Jesus, and operate like Jesus in every single area of life, and thus experiencing the kingdom, the rule and reign, the way of God. And so in this passage, Jesus, he's going to instruct his followers, his disciples, on how to actually experience Experience the kingdom of God. You can hear me talk about it, a goofy guy whose outfit matches the carpet. You can hear me talk about the kingdom of God all day long and it might not do much for you. 
Jesus, on the other hand, he's a way more gifted teacher and preacher than I am. And what he has to say to us today, it enables a human being to experience the kingdom of God, to actually feel it and live in it, okay? How? Through behaving like salt and like light, all right? So for the sake of time, we're going to jump right in. If you have your Bible, you can flip to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. I'll be in the Christian, the Christian Standard Bible translation. If you don't have your Bible, the team's going to throw the words up for us. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Um, before I jump into the passage, I want to pray. So will you join me? Let's pray together. Hmm. God, thank you for your presence. Thank you that you're with us. Jesus, thank you that your teachings are making are going to make their way to our ears this morning. I pray for anybody who's having a distracted morning, whether it's something that happened to them earlier this week or last night even. I pray that the way that they feel about others and the way that they feel potentially about themselves would not distract them from hearing the power and the beauty of your words this morning. I pray that I wouldn't do anything to hinder that. I only want to do what you want me to do, Father. I want to honor these people. So would you uh, change us? Would you teach us? Would you transform us? You really are the greatest teacher and preacher, Jesus. So we open ourselves to you. Help us, Holy Spirit. Point us to Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. All right, this will sound familiar as I read this. If you've been a part of the church at any length of time, you've probably heard this. Or even if you haven't, it's kind of a cultural thing that's kind of made its way into culture. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. These are the words of Jesus. He says this, speaking to his disciples, to his followers. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. All right, that's our passage. So what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of my time, I want to talk about salt, I want to talk about light, and I want to talk about what it means for us, okay? So salt, first things first. Uh, the first thing, again, this, there's so much depth to this metaphor, guys. I'm not going to cover everything, but there's a handful of things. There's three things, really, between salt for salt and three things for light that I want to talk about. The first thing with salt is what is salt, what's, what's its purpose? The first thing I think that most of us think of is my, kind of my first point, and that is that, that salt gives flavor. All right? We've all seen it. We've probably all done it. We've sat down at a meal. We've taken our first bite and then immediately grabbed and reached for the salt to put it on our meal. Why do we do that? Because salt has a way of enhancing the meal. It, it, salt, it, it makes something bland taste better. It adds flavor, all right? 
the salt is applied to something. It's applied specifically when a meal is lacking. Okay? Hear me. Jesus is saying that's what the church should do for the world. The church, the part, one of the, part of the purposes of the church is to be salt to the world, to influence those around us in positive and meaningful ways. Are you with me? Let me, let me just talk uh, to our church family for just a second. You guys are a living picture of this. Like in the most beautiful ways, in the most incredible ways, you're such a remarkable community. You can't really tell when you read this passage, but in the Greek, when it says you are the salt of the earth, whenever it says you in this passage, it's a plural version of you. It's y'all, essentially. <laughs> Guys, y'all are amazing. The community that you are, you're fun. You're so much fun. You're kind. You're some of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. Really creative. Man, really thoughtful. Some of the most intelligent people, again, I've ever known are sitting in this room. When I say intelligent, I don't just mean like you know a bunch of stuff and you're all puffed up. I mean like kingdom intelligence, where you're leveraging it for the benefit of others through service. You're sacrificial. Guys, you're, you're amazing. As cliche as it sounds, like you make the world a better place. You're salt on the bland meal. You're salt where things are lacking. In so many amazing ways, you guys reflect this. You give flavor to life where it's lacking. It's one of my favorite things about this community. It's one of my favorite things about this church. You guys do it, and it's absolutely breathtaking to watch. It's encouraging. Now, did you know that all mammals on earth would die without salt? I did not know that until this week when I was prepping for this message. Now listen, all mammals on earth, that includes human beings. So hear me. Again, this analogy, it runs so deep. Jesus' disciples, the church, is necessary for the well-being of the world. Without salt, it dies. And hear me, not just you like as an individual, absolutely you as an individual, but not just you as an individual, collectively. Y'all, the church, it gives flavor and it's necessary for the well-being of the world. It's my first thing here I want to talk about salt. The second thing regarding salt. Um, salt in ancient times was less about adding flavor, although that was part of it, and it was more about you being used as a preservative, specifically to prevent corruption. Okay, so I don't know if you thought about this, but there was not refrigerators 2,000 years ago. So food would spoil. What they would do is they would use salt. So the, think of like a cut of meat. In order for the cut of meat to not go bad, they would take salt and they would rub it into every crevice of that cut of meat. Why? To keep it from spoiling. Again, Jesus and his brilliant use of metaphor and illustration. Friends, all of creation is corrupted with sin. 
All of it. I mean, just take, just in your mind, just, just consider every element of creation around you. Every part of the people around you. Every part of the earth around you. Systems, structures, you name it. Corrupted with sin. And as a result, it's spoiling. It's, it's decaying. It's dividing. It's fraying. So listen, what Jesus is saying is that in a world where sin corrupts and causes decay, the church is like salt. It's a preservative that prevents corruption. See, that's what Christian disciples do. Like, uh, that's how they operate, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. Christian disciples, what they do is they promote reconciliation and renewal everywhere, in every single crevice of the world. Right? Just like salt is rubbed into every crevice of a cut of meat, so are disciples into every area of the world. Uh, we talked about this last couple of weeks, this idea of shalom. You guys remember when we talked about shalom? Shalom is the, the Hebrew word for peace. And in our culture, we would understand peace more along the lines of like the absence of conflict. Right? But the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is a way more comprehensive idea. And it's not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of something. It's not just the absence of conflict. Do you remember what it is? The presence of what? Do you remember? Wholeness. The presence of wholeness. That's the, the, the biblical concept, the Hebrew concept of, of, of peace, of shalom. And so, again, Jesus calling his disciples salt. These are people who are seeking shalom. Right? They're preservatives, like salt would be on meat. Not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness. So Jesus is like, my disciples, you guys, you're like the salt. You function like salt. You preserve. And everything that disciples do, they, they, they promote reconciliation and renewal. When I say renewal, I mean things being made new. The way that they were supposed to be in the beginning, before sin entered. You with me? Yeah, great. So let me just give you kind of a, a, a practical example. There's a bunch that we could do, but this is one that never gets old talking about, especially in the church. Being salt, it means that we promote conflict resolution instead of relational pollution. Me and Herrick were talking about this this morning. He appreciates my, my phrasing and how it, how, it, how it rhymed. So if, if there's, there's two of us in the room that can geek out on the, the preacher point liner. If you're taking notes, write that down, okay? <clears throat> I'll say it again. Being salt means we promote conflict resolution instead of relational pollution. Conflict resolution instead of relational pollution, okay? What is relational pollution? Relational pollution is this. It's like, I'm disappointed, or I'm upset, or I'm frustrated, or I'm angry, or I'm hurt by someone, so I go and talk to you about it. It's just a form of gossip, right? What's interesting, gospel and gossip, they're similar. They both involve the spreading of information. Gospel, right? What it means is it literally, it, it means joyful good news. In the context of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus is the joyful good news about who God is and what he's done through Jesus. 
right? Gospel means joyful good news. Gossip, let me just read you the definition. Conversation or reports about the behavior of other people. So, gospel is the reporting about what God has done. Gossip is reporting about what other people have done. And here's the thing about gossip. Gossip, it implies that that other person, that the one that's being talked about, isn't present. Now, hear me. I, I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, okay? I'm not saying that you never talk about other people unless they're present. But you can talk about others in an honorable way or you can talk about others in a toxic way. Christians are gospel people, not gossip people. So what does that look like for us to be salt, right? Here's just practically. Whenever there's conflict of any kind, okay, whenever like the decay of sin is kind of corrupting things just ever so slightly, the people of God are called to be salt, to preserve, to promote shalom, to promote conflict resolution instead of relational pollution. Hear me. Gossip is just relational pollution. And here's the thing. The the, the underlying and often kind of covert message of gossip is sort of like this. It's like, I'm upset, or I'm hurt, or I'm annoyed at someone, and you should be too. Whether it's explicitly intended or not, like at its core, gossip, what it does is it poisons the well. It influences that person about another person without that person being present, even in ever so slight ways. We're going to cover this a lot more several months from now when we finally get to Matthew chapter 18. It is in Matthew's gospel. We'll get there someday. But in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, he gives explicit instructions on how to handle any kind of conflict between people. And I'll sum it up. He basically says, go directly to that person. Like, go directly to them. When, when instead of going to them, we go to someone else to talk about them, that's gossip. That's relational pollution. And like all pollution, it's toxic. It, it literally corrupts. So, just getting practical, next time someone comes to you about somebody else, just lovingly, not judgmentally, but lovingly ask them, like, hey, have you spoken to that person yet? I really want to encourage you. Go, go. Well, I just, I need to process with you. You know who they should be processing with? Jesus. And that other person. Like, that's the whole, that's the whole point. You with me? And here's the thing. Let's just, the elephant in the room. All of us are guilty of this one. All of us do this. I'm raising my hand for a reason. Okay, we all need Jesus. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need his forgiveness. And thankfully, he's very merciful. He's very gracious. He's very forgiving. And he's not just gracious to forgive us of our trespasses, but to help give us wisdom about what it looks like to live in his kingdom, to be salt. 
So, being salt, it means that we encourage the people around us to, to avoid relational pollution. Christians, called to be salt, to preserve, to promote reconciliation and renewal, right? My silly one-liner, conflict resolution instead of relational pollution. That's what we're called to. It's one of the elements about what it means to live as salt on the earth. Again, it's, it's all about, it, that's just one example, but it's, it all kind of is this encompassing thing of seeking shalom, right? It's all about pursuing shalom, wholeness, in a corrupted, decaying world. Are you with me in this? Great. Okay? Now, think about this. The possibilities are endless. Literally, I mean, your relationships, every single one of your relationships, you can be salt in those relationships. Uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we talked about the difference between, um, about, about the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. And we talked about how kind of like the idea of peacekeeping is kind of a fallacy. Peace, peacekeeping is like, well, I don't want to say anything because it's going to, I'd rather just keep the peace. And you're actually not keeping the peace. You're actually making trouble for yourself. If you're not dealing with the reality of the sin and the brokenness that God wants to heal and mend, Right? Peacemaking, sometimes it, it looks like going to someone in love instead of peacemaking. Peacemaking, or, yeah, uh, peacekeeping is more of like a peace faking kind of a thing. You're just, you're just kicking the can down the road. So you can act salty in a good way in your relationships and, and the way that you steward your resources, your time and your money and your possessions and all the things and the ways that we treat our bodies in the ways that we treat other people's bodies, in the ways that we handle the environment, like it literally applies to everything, guys. The Christian, the disciple, the church, y'all are salt of the earth. And again, let me just kind of like, in a, <laughs> let me just boast about you guys as a church. Remarkable people, you guys are incredible. So many of you are doing this in genuinely incredible ways. Doing it like living as salt in, with your job, uh, with, with how you interact with your friends and your neighbors. Here's one that gets me recently that I just get fired up about. In the ways that you are putting an end to generational sin. What I mean by generational sin is like, if you look back on family lines, oftentimes you'll see patterns of sin that trickle down from generation to generation. Patterns of abuse. Patterns of divorce. Patterns of neglect. And I look around the room and I see so many of you that are like, it stops with me. Salt. Preservation. The decay stops here. You with me? You guys are doing this in really beautiful, amazing ways. And I have a front row seat at watching it happen. And I want to affirm it in you. So many of you, the ways that you serve your community, I could go on and on. Uh, Really quickly, GC leaders, gospel community leaders. Um, Our church is made up of multiple gospel communities. There are communities of 20 to 25 adults and their kids that are following Jesus together as a family. Gospel community leaders, I just want to honor you publicly for a second. <laughs> You're some of the saltiest people I know, <laughs> like in the best way of the, of, the, of the best use of the word. 
Like you really are. You really are. You guys battle for shalom. All the time. You're battling for wholeness in your community. The way, oh, I could like, I'm gonna lose it. The ways that you sacrifice your time and your energy to promote shalom in your community. And not just in your GC, but in the community at large. God, it honors Jesus. So salty. (laughs) So salty. Listen to me. Those of you guys in gospel community, do you love on your GC leaders? Love on them, encourage them, pray for them. They genuinely love you. Like they really do. And it's not just them. It's not just gospel community leaders. It's all of you. You can't see it, but maybe I'll undo my button. On my forearm, you might not be able to see it, but I have a scar right here on my right forearm. I was, um, I was taking something out of the oven. This is several years back. I was taking something out of the oven. And when I was taking it out of the oven, I, I seared my skin. Like it wasn't one of those, oh gosh, I need to put some like cold water on that for a little bit. It was like bad. <laughs> it was like, oh boy. Like I had to do the whole like burn ointment on it and like the whole treatment. It was, it was, it was really, really rough. And I mean, it's healed, but, but there's still a scar. For whatever reason, so many people in our church, so many of us, have a very painful past with the church. They've been burned. They have scars. And hear me. I've witnessed you, the church, be that healing ointment for people. Like, I've witnessed you, the church, the very thing that caused the burn, healing the burn. If that's not renewal, I don't know what is. It's spectacular. It's the Spirit of God intervening, I would say miraculously through his people to bring about renewal. Salt. Guys, I'm so proud. Like, there's a difference between like sinful pride and like taking pleasure. I say I'm proud, like I don't mean like sinfully. I mean like I take so much pleasure in being able to witness God work through you remarkable people in such salty ways. I hope and I pray that, um, that you guys would be able to give yourself over to experiencing God's kindness in the ways that he's doing that with you as well. Because it's really, really beautiful. Okay, one more thing here uh, regarding salt that Jesus taught, he mentions. Uh, and it's this, it's found in verse 13, but it's this, it's salt can lose its taste. Jesus says it, look back at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? 
It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, again, there's so much more depth in the original language. This was originally written in Greek. We're reading it in English. The translation from Greek to English, some things kind of get lost in translation. Here's one of them. Where it, the word, therefore, lose its taste in Greek, it's the Greek word moreno. Moreno. All right? And that word moreno is used four times in the New Testament. It's obviously used here in Matthew. It's used one other time in, in the exact same way in Luke chapter 14, which is referencing essentially the same thing, right? The disciples of Jesus are salt and light, and salt can lose its taste. So same usage in Luke chapter 14 as here in Matthew chapter 5. But there's two more times that it's used in the New Testament. Once in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, and again in Romans chapter 1 verses 22. Let's, let's read these together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, there it is. This is what it says. This is Paul writing, both of these, Romans and 1 Corinthians is Paul writing. He says, who is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom moreno? Foolish. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Claiming to be, to be wise, they moreno became fools. That, that word moreno. It means to be foolish. Uh, one scholar, one biblical scholar says this quote, listen up. The verb translated, lose its taste, indicates foolish and immoral behavior. It refers to a professing disciple whose unrighteous lifestyle promotes destruction rather than purification. Such salt is only good for spreading over ground where you want to kill vegetation. Such is the fatal effect of an unrighteous disciple's lifestyle. Nothing grows where they go. End quote. So, so, so Jesus is making it really clear here. And what he's making it clear is that every single person has a choice. You have a choice. I have a choice. Wisdom. Or foolishness. Conflict resolution or relational pollution. We, we can promote renewal and restoration or we can join in on the destruction and the decay. And Jesus says, if salt, if it stops preserving, if it stops functioning that way, if it stops preventing corruption, he says it's good for nothing. So Christian in the room, can I just ask you a question in love and genuinely in humility that I've asked myself this question this week. Are there areas in your life where you're losing your saltiness? All right, that's salt. Let's talk about light. The first thing about light that I think it's important for us to talk about is that it's not something that you can produce yourself. Uh, one of the things that we do every single year as a church family is we have a big Christmas party. Okay? The Sunday before Christmas, 
Like we don't do Christmas Eve, kind of traditional Christmas Eve services. Uh, we don't, we throw a really big celebration the Sunday before Christmas, our annual Christmas party, which for the record, I'm going to put you on blast. Sienna, give it up for Sienna. She helped us lock down. Wait, hold on. You guys don't even know what you're clapping for yet. Pause. Reserve the claps. Although we love Sienna, she deserves clapping. We, she helped us secure our location for our Christmas party already this early. We're going to do it at the Harveston Lake House, which is beautiful. There's plenty of parking. So, Sienna, thank you. We honor you. Uh, we, we really enjoy our Christmas party every year. It's, it's a, kind of a hallmark thing about this family, this household of faith. And one of the things that's kind of become a tradition at our Christmas, um, our Christmas party is the way we close it, the way we end it. And basically what we do is we pass out candles and we do like a, a candlelit rendition of Silent Night. And for some of you in the room, you might be like, that's super Christian, hokey, dorky, whatever, okay? And maybe it is. But it's actually really special and powerful. One of the things that makes it really special is you can hear the kids like singing. And typically it's dark and all we really have is the candles that are lit. And so it might sound kind of lame, but it's actually really powerfully prophetic. And here's why. Each of those candles they don't like spontaneously combust to provide their own flame. What happens usually is we bring a lighter and someone lights the lighter and lights the first candle and maybe a couple other ones and then the flame spreads among the candles. That light, it's one of the things about light, it's not self-produced. The light, it originates from the lighter, right? Light always has a source, and the source isn't ourselves. Let me read you a quote. William Barclay, a theologian I respect, he says this quote, light isn't something we can produce ourselves. It originates from another source. Of one thing the Jews were very sure, people never kindled their own light. Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews, right? Jerusalem was indeed a light to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But God lit Israel's lamp. The light with which the nation or the people of God shone was a borrowed light. It must be so with the Christian. Listen to this. It's not the demand of Jesus that we should, as it were, produce our own light. Hear this. We must shine with the reflection of his light. The radiance which shines from the Christian comes from the presence of Christ within the Christian's heart. So in other words, Christians are candles. God is the lighter. Uh, do you remember the first thing? And I'm talking the very first thing that God says in the Bible. What is it? Let there be light. Who's the source? Him. I'm talking in the very beginning. Like if you read Genesis chapter one, verse one, it starts with in the beginning. <laughs> in the very beginning, you have almighty God speaking 
let there be light. And it says there was. He's the source. We don't produce light. It always comes from another source. We shine with a light that originates from Christ. We are candles. God is the lighter. Be with me. Look back at our passage here, starting in verse 14. You, you could make the case it applies to everybody in this room, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory. Other translations say glorify, same thing, your Father in heaven. Guys, do you know what it means to glorify something? You've probably heard me talk about this before. I've used this analogy before, but... Here, let, me, let me to glorify. It's to bring attention to or to reveal the glory of something. The best way I know how to describe this is most mornings, if the weather's good, I'll go in my backyard. I'll start my day with coffee and just me and Jesus. The earlier, the better. And what I'll do is I'll sit in my backyard. And right above my head hang some wind chimes. If you've been to my house, you've seen them. So those wind chimes are there. And the wind chimes, they look fine. They're whatever, they're cool, right? But hear me, their true glory, their true glory is not in how they look as a decoration. Their true glory is revealed when the wind kicks up. Because when the wind kicks up, the music begins. The wind glorifies the wind chimes. It reveals their true glory. Look at verse 16 again. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify, give glory to your Father in heaven. So, friends, Jesus is saying that your good works glorify God. They reveal what he's like. How? Because Christians are candles. They're not the lighter. So when you see the light, you know that it has a source. And the source of the light is not the candle because Christians are candles. God is the lighter. He's the source of the goodness. The light of your goodness shining to the people around you, it reveals God. Are you with me? Like, think about that for a second. I'm not saying you are God. I'm saying if you're a, if you're, if you're a Christian, God is in you. And he shines, and when he shines, people encounter that. Namely, they encounter him. How? Through your good works. So therefore, your good works are just like the wind blowing through the wind chimes. It reveals their true glory. You reveal the glory of God. Light isn't something that you can produce yourself, friends. That's called religion. That's, that's a fallacy, by the way. We're candles, God's the lighter. The second thing, quickly... 
about light is that light, it, it, it guides, okay? Um, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, it was at night, and I was, I was walking into my bedroom, and the, the lights are off in my bedroom, and to be honest, the last couple weeks for our household have been fairly chaotic, and so the last thing that we could get to to like tidy up and clean has been our bedroom. I know the layout of my bedroom. I know how it's structured. I know where things typically are, but I'm, I walk in my bedroom. I don't turn the light because I just need to grab something really quick. I don't turn the light on. I walk in, and I, I bash my knee on the corner of the bed. If you've ever done this, you know what it feels like. It's, it's the kind of pain where you're like, I think, just, just take me now. Just, I don't want to deal with this. This is, uh, this is, you know it's fleeting. You know it's going to go away in about five minutes, but it, it hurts so bad. It was one of those moments where I just, everything inside of me wanted to yell the most obscene, terrible things. Thank you that at least some of you, some of you religious people would never do anything like that. But I bash my knee on the corner of the bed in the darkness. Why? Because there's no light. Light exposes what's in the darkness and it helps you see the way. It helps you avoid smashing your knee into the corner of the bed. So the idea here is that Christians, followers of Jesus, disciples, they're genuinely an example. What are they an example of? They're an example that God's ways are good. That his rule, his reign, the way that he has created human beings to flourish, his kingdom, right? He's the king, he calls it. They're examples that God's ways are good. That God's ways, they're the root to human flourishing. I don't know if you know this, but you're, you're being, you're being uh, advertised at all day, every day. Someone is trying to sell you something all the time. And what they're trying to sell you is that human flourishing results by you giving them money for whatever they have to offer you. Not just money, your attention as well. Some precious resource, time or money usually. But God's going, no, no, I created you. Every, every directive that he gives is essentially the route to human flourishing. And light guides the way. It's an example to those around you that doing things God's way is actually good. It doesn't eliminate suffering because we're still in a decaying planet. But it shows the way it guides smash your knee into the corner of the bed. Uh, the final thing here quickly about light, and that is this, that the primary duty of light is to be seen. The primary duty of light is to be seen. Look back at verse 15 with me. Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, <laughs> but rather up on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. The purpose of light is to be seen. Listen to me. So is your Christianity. The purpose of light is to be seen. Let me read you uh, the famous Christian quote. You've probably heard it before. I honestly don't know who said it, but it's brilliant. 
Quote, There can be no such thing as secret discipleship. For either the secrecy destroys the discipleship, or the discipleship destroys the secrecy. Friends, our discipleship to Jesus is a light unto the world. That means it's meant to be seen. And hear me, that applies to both inside the church, absolutely, and outside the church. When you live as a disciple inside the church and with other people who are living as disciples inside the church, there's this collaborative guiding to the way. You with me? The same thing applies to outside of the church, your engagement with people who don't yet know the love of Jesus. Same thing applies. Light still has the same purpose. So listen, friends, your discipleship, my discipleship to Jesus, it has implications on everything and everyone around you. Think about that for a second. Implications on everything and everyone around you, either for the better, salt and light, or for the worse. Hear me. I think I've been saying this a lot, but it bears repeating. Do you realize how much purpose your life has? Like, like every single moment. Do you realize how much purpose your life has? Even the seemingly small moments. Even the seemingly insignificant moments filled with purpose. One more quote, William Barclay for the win. He says this quote, Further, this Christianity should be visible not only within the church. A Christianity whose effects stop at the church door is not much use to anyone. It should be even more visible in the ordinary activities of the world. Listen to this. Our Christianity should be visible in the way we treat a shop assistant across the counter, in the way we order a meal in a restaurant, in the way we treat our employees or serve our employer, in the way we play a game or drive, or park a car, in the daily language we use, in the daily literature we read. As Christians, we should be just as much a Christian in the factory, the workshop, the shipyard, the mine, the schoolroom, the surgery, the kitchen, the golf course, and the playing field as we are in church. Listen to this. Jesus did not say, you are the light of the church. He said, you are the light of the world. And in our, li- in our lives in the world, our Christianity should be evident to all. End quote. Hear me. Christians in the room, speaking to just you for a second. You are empowered by Almighty God, literally by His Spirit, to live a life of intentionality and purpose. Talk about a high calling. Um. A, an old mentor of mine, a guy by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt, a uh, really gifted um, guy, does most of his ministry in the Pacific Northwest. He used this phrase, I think he, I think he adapted it from Leslie Newbigin, but I could be wrong. But he used this phrase, he talks about living in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. Living in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. Why would you tip the waiter really big for bad service? 
because that's grace. That's what God does with me. He gives me, he doesn't just, he doesn't like, he gives me more than I deserve. It's a living picture of grace, so I operate that way because Jesus has been that way with me. And grace, I don't know if you know this, it transforms the world. It's the most powerful force in the universe. Why would you live with less so that you can give more? Let me tell you about Jesus. He sacrificed so much for me. He left his throne in heaven, angels adoring him and worshiping him. He emptied himself, the scriptures talk about, took on on human limitations. Why? So that I could inherit that. So that I could be redeemed and forgiven and made new. Why do I live with less so that I can give more? Because Jesus did with me. Why would you forgive that awful offense, that unforgivable offense that your neighbor or your family member or your friend, like, oh, because Jesus did with me 200 times yesterday. Why do you live like that? Because a light is meant to be seen. Listen to me. Those questions, they will not come if your light is hidden. If your discipleship is a secret. And I'm not talking about boasting, look at how much I'm tipping the terrible waiter. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you living your life on display so that it's only a matter of time until people are confronted with a countercultural radical behavior coming from you and going, why on earth do you do that? And you go, Jesus, let me tell you about him. Look at what he's doing in my life. You don't have to be the greatest biblical scholar in the world. You don't have to be able to break down Romans and the Greek. You just have to be the which you are, the world's leading expert in how God is intervening in your life and how you're encountering his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his love for you. The church is meant to be set apart, friends. It's meant to be distinct. That means it stands out, but it is not meant to be isolated or hidden. The whole language of in the world, but not of the world, right? That's what Jesus is getting at. Salt and light. All right, I'll call the band up. You guys come up and join us quick. I'm going to take a swig of water, and then I'll close, okay? Um, Here's what I want. For you this morning. What I really want for you is I want to try to um, I want to try to destroy some of the things that are causing some of you to be down and depressed. Not all of you, but some of you to be kind of like questioning your worth. Listen, I really want you to see something. I want you to see how much purpose there is in even the seemingly small ways that you live as a disciple of Jesus. Things that aren't platformed where you get a face mic and you're in front of people talking. I'm talking about the day-to-day, mundane ways that you live as a disciple of Jesus. 
behaving like salt and behaving like light. So much purpose. That means you're valuable. Those seemingly small things are not insignificant. Why? Because it's salt to a decaying world. It's light in a really dark place. For many of you, like, you need to hear this this morning. Hear me. You're doing a really good job. You're doing a really good job. It's a mess out here. I don't know if you know this. Things are really jacked up. They're pretty dark. You want to know how I know that? Because I have a heart just like you do. And I know how fickle my heart is. Some of you, it's like, you just need to like the whole marathon analogy. You just need encouragement. It's like, how do you finish a marathon? One step at a time. And I want to encourage, there's a large portion of the room that just needs to hear this. You're doing a really good job. The way that you're approaching life, salt and life, or salt and light, it's, it's so purposeful. It's so meaningful. Just keep going, man. Just keep going. You can't do it alone. It's a y'all or salt and light, right? For others of us, maybe you're, maybe you're kind of living foolishly in the moment. Maybe you're losing your taste. Instead of preventing corruption, maybe you're adding to it by living in destructive and sinful ways. Or maybe you're the kind of person right now, you're, you're just kind of like, for a plethora of reasons, you're hiding your light. Like Jesus talks about that light being in the, under the basket. You're like, that's me. That's me. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're worried. Maybe there's some deep pain that still hasn't healed. But maybe you're hiding your light. Maybe your discipleship to Jesus has become like individualistic instead of communal. You've read the you are salt and light as though it's singular instead of plural. And as a result, those inside the church, they don't get to see your light. And those outside the church, they don't get to see your light either. If that's you, can I just encourage, for all of us actually, can I just encourage us? Can we receive the forgiveness and grace of Jesus in a really fresh way this morning? That he sees us. He sees us in the ways that we live. And his love for us remains. And his desire for us, his invitation to us to be salt and light, it remains. Here's what I want for us. Every single one of us in the room, myself included, I want for all of us to be who God created us to be. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Because hear me, when we live our lives the way that God intends for us to, other people experience the kingdom. And when they experience the kingdom, they inevitably encounter the king, Jesus. And there's nobody like him. There's no love like the love of Jesus. There's no goodness like the goodness of Jesus. 
the one who takes all of our, sh- our shame and our sin upon himself, he, he willingly did that. He says, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. Why would he do that? Because of his great love for you. There's nobody like him. He's incredible. He's so worthy of all our attention. He's so worthy of all our devotion. And he's so available to us all the time. There's nobody like Jesus. If you don't, if you don't take anything that I've said with you today except for this one thing, I would pray that it would be this. Nobody will ever love you like Jesus loves you. And his love will empower you to radically live as salt and as light. And when we do that, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the ways that you approach us in love. Thank you for the many ways that you, you, you are empowering our church family to be salt and to be light, to be salt in a decaying world, preserving, guarding against corruption, the ways that you're using men and women in this room to be light in really dark places. I praise you. You're the only explanation. You're the explanation for the ways that they live, and it's beautiful. And my prayer, God, is that you would show us the way to do this in every single area of our lives. We want want our our light to increase, the the flame to get brighter. We want our saltiness to get more potent, not so that we would be impressive, not so that our church would necessarily like grow. No, but so that people would be, they would experience your kingdom and encounter you, the king, and that transformation would be the result. Show us the way, God. Thank you for the invitation to be part of your family, to participate in your mission with you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your kindness to us. You're so good and merciful and loving. We honor you. Amen. All right, will you go ahead and stand with me if you're able? We have uh, about... 10 to 15 minutes left in our gathering. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to, together, y'all, plural, church, we're going to respond to the goodness of God. We're going to praise him because he's worthy. He's worth it. That's what it means. We're going to invite him into different spaces in our heart. Um, The band's going to lead us in a time of prayer. If you are on the ministry turn, the prayer team, would you make your way over to the side over here? If that's you this morning, would you make your way over here? There's trusted men and women who are going to be over here um, to pray for you. If you have any needs in your life, if there's there's insecurities you're facing, or... uh, if you, if you need to be healed internally, uh, physically, if, if, there's, if there's ways that you want to experience God and you feel like he's, he's inviting you into that, I want to encourage you, make your way over here to pray. They'll pull you aside. You guys can go to a private area and pray. That'll be available to you. So praise and prayer and response. And then Herrick will come up and close us in pastures. Okay, guys? Love you very much. Enjoy him. Thank you, Father, for sending your son for us. I thank you that because of Jesus, our lives have so much dignity. And that what we do really does matter. And I thank you that Jesus has shown us the way. 
the royal way, a way that honors you and pleases you, and that brings hope and renewal to the whole world. I thank you that you're committed to that. I thank you that you're so committed to it that you are willing to pay in, in blood your own shed on the cross so that the world might be rid of the pollution of sin and come alive in the beauty of the king and his kingdom. We love you and we're grateful to you, Father, that we get to be a part of what you're doing. It's in his name, your son Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. I'm going to close this out. Salty disciples promote conflict resolution instead of relational pollution. Salty disciples promote conflict resolution instead of relational pollution. So I was thinking about the message today, the, the words of Jesus, and two things just really stood out to me. Number one, what you do, what I do, what we do, it really matters. Because when people experience the kingdom, through the people of God, they experience who? The king. Whether we like it or not, well, the better question is whether we're aware of it or not, we are all representatives of King Jesus. And so when people experience us, they're in one way or another being shaped and formed of who they believe Jesus is. So what you do, it really does matter. And peacemakers, we've been talking about this, blessed are the peacemakers as we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, People who promote conflict resolution instead of relational pollution, they point to the presence of the king. And as I've been thinking about the relational pollution piece, I thought about something and I just couldn't shake it, so I'm just going to quickly share it from earlier this week. I was driving down the street, uh, living in Crown Hill, and all of a sudden I see something that, I, that just felt so out of place that it just like I had to do a double take. It was the middle of the day, it's bright, it's sunny, and I see a four-legged animal that kind of looks like a dog, but it's clearly not a dog. It's a coyote, and it's just walking down the street. Has anybody seen this in their neighborhood before? Yep, a few of us have, yeah. So if you're like me, you're like, um, hello, as it's going by, like just no idea what to do, just zero. So I kind of like pulled, stopped, I turned around and I started following it, but to, to be honest, I have zero clue of what to do with this coyote. Like, do I, do I honk? Do I run it over? Is that wrong? I don't know. Somebody's dog could get, you know, what's better, the dog, coy the coyote, or Mr. Bojangles in like somebody's backyard? I don't know. But, but the point is, I had no idea what to do. And as I've been sitting here thinking about this message, thank you, Tom, for laying this out for us. I have a feeling that a lot of us have no idea what to do in the presence of relational pollution. None. And you might be like me, and you're like, um, hello, gossip's not okay. But you, you don't know. You're like, I have no idea what to do. What does this look like? And it can be kind of frightening, because you get out of the car, the coyote might bite you. I don't know if coyotes actually do that, but I suppose it's always possible. They have teeth. They're undomesticated animals. So I stayed in my car. <laughs> but what I did do is I Googled what to do with a coyote. And now I know. You get big, you get loud. You, you, if you happen to have pots and pans in your car, you bang them. <laughs> you put rocks in a 
in a water bottle of water and shake it? You know, that's what you do, because that's their language, they get it. What's my point? A really interesting Wednesday, obviously. But I think that there's a reality that a lot of us just don't even know what to do in the presence of this pollution. That's why we're disciples who are learning the way of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we gather every Sunday to, to learn more about the way of Jesus. That's why we gather across homes for the Lord's Supper so that we can talk and unpack about the way together. And we can learn what it looks like to actually honor Him because what you do matters. Your life matters. And so today, I just want almost like this idea of, yes, what we do matters, and your response to these to relational pollution is really important, but just know we're all learning together. And I think, I think Jesus is keenly aware of that. And so now, you've got a little tool in your toolkit that you can use. Next time you see relational pollution, you can move towards it. You can even acknowledge, I don't know what to do, but I bet you Jesus wants me to do something. Let's figure this out. Let's open up the scriptures. We're here to help as pastors. We'd love to help you as you partner with him to actually promote this relational wholeness, this shalom, conflict resolution. So with that said, let's pray. We'll close this out. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. I thank you that salty disciples promote conflict resolution instead of relational pollution. And I thank you that you are so patient, you are so kind. I love that Jesus, what you did was teach. You taught all the time. Why? Because we don't know what to do so much of the time. Constantly teaching us, constantly reminding us, constantly instructing us. And I thank you that you've left us your word. You've, you've indwelt us by your spirit and you've given us a people to belong to so that we're not learning how to do this on our own. We're not Lone Ranger Christians. Y'all. It's us together, pointing to the presence of the King, inviting the whole world to come and experience renewal and peace with Him and with one another. Help us this week as we engage as disciples, as we encounter relational pollution, would you help us to be peacemakers who promote the things of the kingdom in this world. We love you, Father, and we're grateful to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and do a soft close. And what that means is we still have three or four more minutes. So if you want to go get prayer, you can still go get prayer. If you want to talk to one of us, we'll be up here in the front. If you have children, please go grab them at noon and enjoy the next few minutes and, um, and your Sunday. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Hope you guys enjoy it.